0: Welcome to Tech Enabled. I'm your host, John Bailey, a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. In each episode, we feature a conversation exploring the challenges and opportunities raised by emerging technologies. Our hope is that Tech Enabled will introduce you to new entrepreneurs, new thinking, and stimulate new ideas as we tackle the pressing challenges that lie ahead of us. Today, we're joined by Michael Horn, who is the co-founder of and a distinguished fellow at the Christensen Institute, an important institution which advances the theories of disruptive innovation, developed by the late Harvard professor, Clay Christensen. Michael has been a leading thinker of how disruptive innovation applies to the education and workforce sectors. He has written Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, and Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools. He joins us today to discuss his new book, From Reopen to Reinvent, Recreating School for Every Child. We discuss how the pandemic has created a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity to rethink our systems and approaches to teaching and learning. Michael shares some perspectives on change management and moving from responding to threats to seizing opportunities, and also how the theory of jobs to be done can be used to help build the learning experiences that parents and students demand. And now, on to our conversation. Michael, I am so thrilled you're with us today. I have known Michael, I don't even know for how long. I mean, it's probably been... 20 years? 15 probably years? 15, 20 years. Yeah, that's probably about right, John. Yeah. Uh, who has been just an incredible friend and also an incredible mentor in the way Clay Christensen's disruptive theory can apply to a whole variety of different sectors, but particularly education and in the workforce space. And I have just been so privileged to, to get to know him and to learn from him. And he has a new book out. It's called From Reopen to Reinvent recreating school for every child and he is with us today and we're going to talk about some of the the issues and the themes that the book raises it was fascinating it was it was such a, a great and easy read uh, that just provoked a lot of different questions for me and also challenged me in a bunch of different ways And so Michael, let's just jump in like in the beginning of the book you talk about this moment that we're in right now sort of sort of coming out of the pandemic. And that it's not so much about disrupting the existing model of education as much as about it's deciding what we build out of the destruction. So, I mean, that's provocative. Like, what do you mean about that? Like, talk a little bit about that.
1: I wanted to position it in two ways. One, I wanted to give agency to educators and parents in the community to feel like they have choices to make right now, right? Like that a lot was taken away from them and that the rules of how school has been do not have to apply as we sort of snap back. And I wanted educators to feel this sense of agency that they could actually make concerted decisions to build a better system to serve every child. And That was honestly the biggest thing. I think the second thing was, I wanted to signal that this isn't a book about disruptive innovation so much, that this is a book, you know, there's a design theory part of the book, there's a change management, and then there's like a prescriptive set of things that I think would make schools a lot better for all students that educators ought to put in place. And so I wanted to speak to that as well.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, it's interesting too, because usually with disruptive theory, you need something to do the disruption. It needs to be a management change or a competitive threat. Here we had the pandemic. The pandemic was the disruption and has given this sort of remarkable permission to some degree, like you have parents clamoring for something better, kids wanting something better, teachers wanting something better. And so what are some of the opportunities you see coming out in this next phase? Like what what are your hopes of what schools will and teachers will use that agency and parents will use that agency? What do you hope they will build? Yeah. So I think the
1: first thing I would say in the umbrella thing is I want them to build a system that is not zero sum, where it feels like for a change that we make, some group of individuals lose and some win. I think we really need to shift to this positive sum mindset where we are building something that is truly better for all students, not just like, oh, these students over here and good luck to these others over there, and or they're good enough, so it'll be okay. We need to be building and selling something. And I say selling intentionally because... In technology, you would never build a product and say, oh, it's for these you know, individuals over here. We hope you also buy it, but it's not built for you, right? Which is sometimes what we signal in education. So that's the overriding thing. And then in terms of the opportunities, I think we ought to be looking at a system that is mastery-based, that students move on as they actually master the knowledge, the skills, the dispositions that they are working on. I think we ought to be moving to a system that creates a lot more support for students and teachers and gets rid of the one teacher, one classroom model that we have You know, larger groups of students in larger spaces working with many adults who are supporting them in a variety of ways. I'd love us to look at a system in which teachers were not grading their own students so that they could truly be their coach and advocate, but that other educators, other professionals were the ones that were actually assessing student mastery and doing the grading, quote unquote, if you will. And then I love finally a system that was not one size fits all. That we said different parents, different students, different educators need different options and choices to best support the progress that they're trying to make. And I think the biggest thing that has held schools back is they've come in with a very one size fits all approach to the stuff that this is your neighborhood school everyone's going to go there it's going to look the same thing we're going to have the same program of study whatever it might be and the reality i think the pandemic made it so clear is that you know people have vastly different home environments vastly different childcare needs vastly different priorities and those things aren't necessarily bad. They just are reality. And so I think we have to create a system or set of options that doesn't assume everyone fits in
0: the same box. I love that. You just mentioned, you know, mastery-based education, which is something that I know you have talked about and really thought about and researched over many years now. We we just had our good friends, uh Sal Khan and also Amy McGrath on about the new Khan World School that they they're building and both of them mentioned this idea of mastery. But but mastery is still a bit of a foreign concept for a lot of folks, especially people listening to this podcast. How do you define mastery-based education? And why is it such a fundamental paradigm shift in the way we think about learning? Totally. I love the question. And I will say, I try to break it down a lot
1: in the book and say what it is and isn't, first of all. And secondly, some ways to mitigate what people might say are the problems with mastery-based learning as they give some thought to what it is. But high level, the way I think about it is, our current system basically says, you have a certain number of minutes, we're going to deliver learning to you. And then there's going to be this wild spread of some students master it, some students don't, no problem at all. They just keep moving to the next concept. And we know that's going to create gaps in their learning that's going to inhibit their ability to learn advanced concepts. And if the goal of schools is not to reflect the real world, but to prepare students for the real world, then I argue a mastery based approach is far more rigorous. It's in tune with the science of learning, where it basically says, Students don't fully move on from a concept until they demonstrate mastery of it. Uh, and so instead of saying like, gee, we only have 10 minutes to do this, John, whether you get it or not, doesn't matter. We're moving on. We say, no, this is a really important foundational concept, You know, phonemic awareness, phonics, whatever it might be, you are going to master this. And if it takes you three days instead of 10 minutes, that's fine because at the end of it, we'll know you have truly mastered it. And then that will allow you to continue to learn. And so my big argument is that our entire education system ought to be modeled around this mastery-based idea that time should be the variable, but learning and these outcomes that we say are so important, that should be constant for every child.
0: Yeah, I love that. It's interesting. I feel like the pandemic also gave some people a taste of this. It may have been even somewhat accidental, but I, I know... One of my best friends, his son, Josh, he realized that if he completed all of his online lessons during remote school quickly, he had essentially a four-day weekend. And it it became this sort of motivation factor that he could, he could move at his own pace. And often, he wanted to move faster to maximize his downtime. I feel like he got a, sort of a taste of that. It'd be amazing if that was sort of built in structurally into the, the way learning uh, worked. You also in the book, you had this thing, which I had never thought of before. And I've been thinking about ever since I I read the passage. But you talked about how leaders are naturally likely to frame something as a threat in order to mobilize resources and actions. And I relate to this because so much of the way public policy uh, is created is that there's a threat. There's an action forcing event. And usually that's a threat. But it's the same thing, too, in schools that we use. You know, a threat or an urgent sort of issue as a way of mobilizing actions and instituting new practices or new systems or new tools. But you suggest that this actually might be counterproductive and you sort of cite a theory. Talk a little bit about why this might be counterproductive. Yeah, absolutely. So,
1: Clark Gilbert uh, did his doctoral research at Harvard uh, before he became president of BYU Idaho, BYU Pathway, and he was also the CEO of the Deseret News out in Utah. He basically did this research where he showed that when there's some sort of discontinuous change, right? Some new thing comes along, some threat, whatever it is. It's actually really important to frame it as a threat for the reason you just said. Otherwise, no one's going to pay any attention to it. No resources get allocated to it and so forth. But if you leave it in that threat framing the response from the organization is a very top-down command control, do what we've always done sort of response, as opposed to one that actually says, how can we innovate and create something brand? New? So his research was in newspapers when the internet came along, right? And he looked at like 20 or so newspapers, and the majority of them framed it as a threat. They got a bunch of resources to go figure out what's, what's this digital thing that that might have something to do with the news in the future. And the majority of them left it as a threat framing and dealt with it in their traditional organization. And as a result, they sort of Basically digitized the existing newspaper, but they didn't create new revenue streams. They didn't create new processes, and as we know, most newspapers, you know, in regional areas and so forth, sort of withered away and and, and died in, in many cases. But there were a few newspapers that said, "If we create a separate group to reframe this as an opportunity, like what would we do?" If we got to go do this internet thing with news, what might we create? And so those newspapers, they created a somewhat separate group that could still borrow resources from the the mothership, if you will, but could reframe it as an opportunity and go chase it. And they created really robust, you know, new versions of what we think of as internet news. USA Today did this. Desert News did this. There's some great examples. But the key was that reframe to opportunity. So I think what was interesting for me was I was very much on the like, Oh God, can we stop talking about learning loss already uh, in the pandemic? But I actually think that framing up front is really important because it motivates a huge response in terms of dollars, in terms of attention, in terms of goal setting. And like, we got to do something about this. And if you leave it in that sort of threat framing... You're just going to get, you know, double down on school, on summer school, do the same, you know, drill, drill more uh, days and things of that nature, rather than saying, like, actually, we have to create something really new that unlocks learning possibilities for students. If, frankly, we hope to engage them, period, since we were doing a pretty poor job of that beforehand. And if we want to catch up a bunch uh, um, uh, to to what, what we've lost. And the big argument, therefore, is that schools need to create something separate, whether it's within the school as a micro school or something like that, or a wholly new school that can say like, gee, knowing what we do about education, if we were to create something from scratch, given COVID and all that has happened, what would we create
0: to best serve students? I love that. It's also, it's something I saw a little bit last year. I remember... As part of the COVID newsletter that I was doing daily, I remember seeing a couple of school districts that just started saying this time last year that they were, as they were going to re-enter the new school year, they were going to have an online option, not because they needed to because of COVID, but because they were responding to a group of students and a group of parents who wanted it. And eventually, I stopped counting, but I think I counted up to close to like 200 school districts that... We're doing this and it felt like pilots uh, almost in some ways. It gave a sandbox for the district to try out new approaches with um, mastery learning or new types of technology tools with a group of students and a group of parents that were eager for that, that wanted that in uh, many respects. We're sort of in a weird spot though. Like, So fast forward, that was last year. Now we're we're in this weird place that actually you sort of acknowledged that we're, we're not quite in the threat of COVID. We're in actually this weird state of like pandemic fatigue. Like I think people are just tired, tired of it. They're tired of dealing with the waves and the uncertainty and waning vaccinations and and whatnot. But also on the other hand, we're not totally back to normal. And so we're in this like weird state of purgatory to some degree. And, and as you were saying, like some of us are just tired hearing about learning loss. Others are tired of hearing about you know X, Y, or Z. But what do you think is like the right way is sort of framing both the threats as well as those opportunities right now as like schools are planning for a new school year with a lot of uncertainty. We're not really sure like what the next couple of months are going to bring, but, but we also have these mounting academic challenges with learning loss. Every single week, the NWA report that came out last week and others that just sort of show both the breadth and depth of learning loss and some of the mental health challenges that we're just hearing from schools. What do you think is the right way of sort of framing both the opportunities and the challenges going forward? Yeah, I mean, and Tom Kane obviously did that really interesting look
1: at just how much work it would take to catch up on the learning loss. And my takeaway from it is we're just not going to do it by doing business as normal. We have to create something really new. And that's that's where I start in this conversation, which is all of the fatigue and all of the, frankly, other issues that are piling on top of the pandemic stuff that is just sapping educator time, morale, what they're focused on, they don't have time to really rethink or reinvent what schooling looks like. And so my take is that actually this threat rigidity framing is a perfect way for them to create capacity in their districts or schools right now so that a team can start to be reinventing what school looks like. And it's almost like the superintendent continues to show up at the school board meetings and having the various conversations that are happening there and dealing with all the fires in the ground and so forth while arming a relatively independent group of educators in their school or district, whatever it is, to say hey, I'm going to shield you. I'm going to protect you. That's the leader's job so that you can really do this radical rethinking that will unlock student achievement across the board. And that's what I think you should be doing right now is creating these relatively small groups. Not quite islands, they should have ties back, but that are rethinking what schooling looks like right now as a way to create capacity given all the exhaustion and, and, and just, you know, urgency of this moment, and then and the next thing and so forth that just keep coming up on the radars of educators right now. And, and I hope some people, you know, the virtual school, I think is a great example of that, of one place where you can really rethink schooling. But frankly, you know, micro schools, we we know that students are still enrolling in them in incredible numbers. Uh, a few years after the pandemic, what would it look like for a school or a school district to do that themselves, set up some micro schools uh, that operated very differently, that had this mastery-based philosophy, for example, uh, and, and service a, a set of students that were excited about being in that environment rather than pushing it on everyone? That's the, that, that gets to that, we have to get beyond this one-size-fits-all idea. Do it for those who are excited about it. And get them going, and then maybe more will join you if you're truly successful. Or maybe you need to do something else for another group of
0: students to, you know, really inspire progress in them. We've talked a lot about, you know, these ideas and some of these theories applying to K twelve. But you actually, you know, in the book, you're you're much more you're broader than that, and you talk about higher education, uh, even some workforce issues, which are so important now. I, I think as we're seeing with. The labor market and with, you know, growing skills gaps that I think there's like 1.9 or two jobs for every unemployed person, but often the unemployed uh, individuals don't have the skills needed for these new high-skilled jobs. And you write a lot about Southern New Hampshire uh, University and about their, their model and how disruptive it is. What's impressed you? And like, why has their response to the pandemic made such an impression on you? And why do you think that's also sort of a model for how institutions can respond going forward. Yeah. Look, Paul LeBlanc, who's the
1: president of Southern New Hampshire University, is a uh, Clay Christensen disciple. They used to play basketball together, uh, actually, while well, I think both were doing their d- doctoral Was oh, that work. true? Uh, I don't think I knew yeah, that. Really? Yeah. Little known fact. Little known fact. Uh, so, Paul was like right alongside Clay, you know, as he was making these discoveries and so forth. And they have this friendship. And Clay was on Southern New Hampshire's board early on when Paul came into this college that was really on life support when he got to Southern New Hampshire University. But they had this sleepy online division that was part of the university. And Paul took some of the insight from Clay and, and said, like, let's make it separate. It's going to operate by its own rules, its own processes. And the online division became this incredibly disruptive force, as you just said, that, you know, it was like 180,000 students or something now, like, you know, really accelerated during the pandemic. It was already humongous but really accelerated during the pandemic because it's affordable, it's good education. It helps people take that next step in their careers and lives uh, in an incredibly efficient manner. And what I thought was so interesting though, was that Paul and his team were having a lot of questions about the brick and mortar campus that they continued to operate uh, even as they grew this online to, to, to such a large size. And they were having doubts about the brick and mortar experience. They felt like a lot of what they were learning in online about mastery-based learning, about uh, flexibility, about uh, better learning design and things of that nature could be combined in some way with that traditional coming of age experience for your college student who you know, wants to go to the parties and wants to be with other people and figuring out who they are in life and so forth. And then thirdly, he thought, you know, the cost is too much. Like, this is not a business model that is going to lead to long-term success. The the tuition just doesn't make sense for most families out there. And so they took the pandemic uh, to say, we're going to take a pause on people coming to campus. We're going to move you all online. Uh, We'll give some breaks to those uh, who don't. But you know, we're going to use this as an opportunity to put together an independent team that gets to rethink what is that brick and mortar school experience. And they've relaunched at a fraction of the price uh, that they were. I think it's ten dollars to $15,000 now tuition. Uh, it is some online learning mastery-based, a lot of project-based learning combined with that brick and mortar traditional college experience so that you're on-campus living with your peers, but taking a lot of classes in really novel formats and the like, uh, and really allowed them to reinvent the college. And I think that's a great model for what a lot of other schools can and should be doing in the K-12 arena uh, as well. And again, it's not that they should shut down their traditional school. They they can't do that, like uh, Southern New Hampshire did. But they ought to be creating these independent groups that get to rethink what their schooling experience looks like. And over time, maybe some of those experiments become the new way school
0: is done. I like that. So it all goes back to playing basketball with clay, which means I think if organizations want to disrupt themselves, they need to put you on their basketball team and on their board.
1: I'll take that. But yeah. just like with clay, you know, six foot eight, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> mini clay, right?
0: Half the height and half the brains. But anyway, <laughs> I think that was the footnote in the uh, in the book there. You had this great chapter, which is something I I feel you know drawn to and resonated with me. That the idea that the future of schools will look a little bit more like a community center and not just purely the school buildings that I think so many of us have been accustomed to because that's what we grew up in and that's what our parents grew up in. But I mean, talk a little bit about that. Like, how would that work? Why do you think that's the you know one type of model going forward? Yeah. So I mean, the basic idea I think is that students
1: do need a place to go for part of the day, right? Parents need them there in many cases. Uh, They want to have fun with their friends, but they all come needing a range of different supports and services and connections with the outside world. And school historically has been built really to keep the community out, right? That when you come, you're, you're sort of locked in this, you know, four walls of the classroom with one teacher, uh, often doing whole class instruction at you. And yet, especially given the changing world and workforce and so forth, like the real breakthroughs for individuals, especially as they get older and older, are going to be in those connections to the outside world and and, and the world of work and, and being able to take on real projects uh, in, in workplaces. And so, uh, my notion is that, You can have a lot of the wraparound supports with various organizations based in your community coming into your school to serve students. You can imagine far more flexible hours so that students, you know, this community center can be open from 7 a.m. to, you know, 9 p.m. at night, right? Staffed very differently, allow students to get that support that they need in different ways. There can still be the sports teams and courses in different ways, but just a lot more freedom and flexibility to meet the fact that families have dramatically different needs and and need of supports, right? From what they need in the schooling system. And it creates this place where employers can sort of say like, hey, here's a hub in our community we can plug into uh, to have future talent of our workforces, you know, doing real work, learning alongside us and so forth. And so... But it's really born out of this idea of how do you create a more flexible model that meets these different needs, but, but also, you know, retain some of the important parts of a community organization and the function of schools to support our democracy and, and build those values in our learners.
0: On first impression, it feels like, my gosh, it's adding more to uh, a school's plate. But I mean, the way I read it, the way I just heard you're talking, it's actually freeing them up. Like it's saying you you focus on your core competency, which is educating, learning, teaching, but it gives space for other people's core competencies to come into that building and help serve them, whether it's health services, um, mental health. This is like become such a crisis. And I know there's like huge issues right now. How do you scale counseling services and therapy services? Yes. You don't need schools to do it, but they can partner with folks to bring them into the building. Uh, to well, it. and it's, a, yeah, and it's an important point because, you know, your colleague Robert Pendisio has written a lot about
1: how there are dangers with asking teachers who are not trained to do mental health services or things like that, asking them to do these things. I think that's right. And there are a lot of great organizations that would love to be able to reach uh, the students that need their services. Yeah. That if they could plug in more intentionally into the school building and the school day, I think could do a, a you know could do what they do well and allow schools to do what they do well. And by the way, for some set of students those services wouldn't be arms length like they would have to be super integrated because you know your your mental health well-being is going to have a profound impact on your ability to do academics and like you're going to want a tight integration of that somehow and so maybe the mental health support sits alongside you as you're doing the online coursework and then the teacher comes in on top and there's some sort of deep integration we haven't figured out yet around those students but i think you want a place where you can make those trade-offs and judgments and and professionals and frankly, bring their budgets too from different funding sources, right? It's not all
0: schools now that you get to tap into to be able to do this. That's right. Yeah. It's also, you know, I, I think you, you talked a lot about blended learning, you know, in the past about you combine the best of in-person schools with the best of online learning and I think what we've seen coming out of the pandemic is that the blended model has sort of now been expanded to a whole bunch of different areas. I, I was just talking to the Hazel Health, which blends telehealth services with also in-person school nurses, and it, it helps complement and expand access to a whole bunch of services that otherwise students wouldn't have access to. And But you always need that sort of in-person physical sort of connection in space. And that's what schools can do. I was so challenged by that. In technology, there's been this theory about uh, jobs to be done, that people hire technology to do specific jobs. And you've taken that theory and you've applied it to what are the jobs to be done uh, that children, that students want schools to provide, but also parents. So can you unpack this? Like, tell us a little bit about the jobs to be done theory. And also, what do you think that uh, students are asking? What's the jobs that they're asking schools to be done? And then what are parents asking for schools to do? yeah, I'll give you the cliff notes, which is
1: that jobs to be done came out of uh, this this notion that people don't want to buy products or services for their own sake. the The uh, famous marketing pr- professor Theodore Levitt used to say, uh, people don't want the quarter inch drill. Uh, they just want the whole, right? <laughs> they want the outcome itself. But even that, is not quite useful enough because it doesn't tell you why they want the whole, right? Like, are they doing it for some housework? It's in the back of their house in a closet, like no one's going to ever see it. Or is this like to hang some art in a gallery? And like, it has to be super precise and pristine and and, and pretty and so forth and understanding context plus the outcome. And, and really, someone's struggling circumstance helps you understand what is a good solution and what isn't a good solution for the progress that it, that individual is trying to make. And, and that's what jobs to be done is. It's really just saying, hey, what does progress look like for someone in a struggling circumstance? And then once we understand that, it launches into design thinking to say, okay, what are the experiences and things we need to wrap around to be able to build a solution that allows them to make that progress? and not a big leap to realize that students, parents, teachers uh, are struggling with a whole bunch of things in their lives. And therefore, they have jobs to be done also that they can hire or choose not to hire uh, different things you know that are out there. And the basic argument that we've made for students, for example, in, in the K-12 setting is that some of their jobs are like they want to feel successful each day, right? They don't want to feel like abject failures, Or they'll say, help me have fun with my friends. And school is something that they can choose to hire to do those things, not by how they spend money. They don't have much, but how they spend their time and engagement. Or they could say, like, actually, video games is a much better way to accomplish those things. Or on the athletic field or on the, you know, in in my arts endeavors or just like hanging out after school with a bunch of kids, you know, outside the school, whatever it is, right? And our big argument is schools have not done a good job of competing on those jobs to be done that individuals have. And a lot of educators, when they hear this, they say, well, I don't care what students, you know, what their jobs to be done are. I want them to learn math or this. And my argument is, yeah, that's your job to be done. But you got to marry the two, because if they don't put in the work and prioritize it, they're not gonna get what you need done either. And so that's the real marriage here is like, we all have different jobs to be done. How do we create a solution that allows us both to make progress on these things uh, that that we're prioritizing in our lives? And and it's not a job to be done if you're not prioritizing it, right? It's, It's not something you actually hold. So, you know, as you referenced in the book, We've now done a bunch of studies on this stuff around why do teachers change practice? Why do parents switch schools uh, in addition to the student stuff? And so we lay out a lot of that because parents and teachers are, are like all of us are complicated human beings. They don't do something for just one small reason. These jobs are really capturing the range of forces that are causing them to act and trying to give some ideas of what solutions might actually help them make progress.
0: You also talk about part of the planning and thinking with that is an assumptions checklist, which is again another phrase I had never heard before. But like, what is an assumptions checklist and how how can that be applied to an organization that's thinking through some of these questions of jobs to be done, transformation, improvement? How how would that be used? Yeah. So the big idea is like when you build a plan for what you want to
1: create you are intentionally or unintentionally making a whole bunch of assumptions about how the world works. And when the plan is really unlike anything you've done before, it's something far-reaching, it's innovative, it's new to your community. Even if someone else has done it somewhere else, you're making a bunch of assumptions that like for this to work, these things have to prove true. And you don't yet have knowledge that those things are in fact true. And so the idea is basically create an assumptions checklist to test them with a minimum viable test, we call it, right? Just to see like, is this right? Or is your vision not going to work because it violates, right? One of these assumptions. And if it does, that doesn't mean you can't innovate. It just means you need to change the design of what you're offering. And so as you think about a job to be done, right? Some parents, they switch schools because their kid is just not succeeding. And they say like, help me get my kid over this obstacle, right? Help me over overcome it. And as you think about designing a solution for that, right, you might say, well, we need uh, special education services or response to intervention or something like that. But then you realize like that the problem is actually very different, right? When you... you And so rather than build an entire school around this assumption in your head of what the problem must be, you actually would test like, would this service actually unlock progress for this parent and this student. If the answer is no, great. I'm glad we learned it before. We just invested a heck of a lot of time and money uh, doing this. And now we
0: can you know, re-architect it to meet those needs. Yeah. Okay. I know we're running out of time. So like three last questions. One, okay. public policy. So you, we've talked a lot and your book talks a lot about what institutions can do, a higher ed, K-12 institution. But policy creates a lot of the enabling or blocking environments for a lot of this. So what is the what is the role that you think? What is your advice to policymakers who might be listening to this that want to sort of help encourage or support or enable the kinds of reforms and transformation that you're talking about? Yeah. So I, you know, I think it's actually not all that different from a lot of the things we've
1: recommended historically, right? Which is let dollars, I would argue, follow the students, let them make these choices. And free up educators on the input side of round what they're offering so that they can get creative. Like if you want to offer that school that has flexible hours and might not meet the seat time requirements of, of the traditional policy, that's okay, right? Or if you have a very novel staffing idea, for example, and you want uh, to have teachers who are not certified by the traditional ways and so forth to get into teaching, free up the inputs, And then I would say the big shift, I think, that policymakers need to make to really grease the skids here is move to a mastery-based assessment model, ultimately. And that would be growth-based for each individual. It would say, hey, you know, all the assessments, right, are are sort of part of this, quote-unquote, accountability model, where they're both for learning, so they are formative in nature. Educators can relax. We're not creating like a huge bureaucracy, right? Of big of big tests, but instead using all these data points to both say what should the student do next, and we can use that to understand where they are in their learning. So we can have a more transparent system, so that you know the public, parents, educators, etc., can make better choices about which schools uh, to send their kids to. So I'd say a much more growth, individual growth based assessment, smaller assessments fewer of them more performance-based and free up the inputs. Uh, you know, allow educators and parents and students to make a lot more choices
0: that are right for their community. Second, so that's advice for public policymakers. How about technology executives? I mean, that's that's something that we often don't talk about. That there's been a surge of entrepreneurship, which is great. Yeah. Uh, I love meeting all these entrepreneurs at ASU GSV and some of these other conferences, and they're completely sort of rethinking and enabling a lot of new models of learning. But they could also sort of get, a, get way sort of distracted or away from some of the jobs to be done or away from uh, some of the rooting and some of the, the the needs that you were outlining in your book. What advice would you give to this next generation of entrepreneurs that are building the tools and services to facilitate this kind of learning? Love the question. I think the big
1: thing is where you started, right? Which is understand the job to be done. And the job to be done isn't just the outcome. It's the circumstance that someone's in. Because how many times have you heard an entrepreneur be like, my product works great if only schools did X, Y, and Z and implemented it in these ways, right? Well, that's not the world in which we live. So you got to understand the context and, and be really aware of that. That's number one. Number two, I think entrepreneurs need to be much savvier about what funding they take as they launch uh, these, you know, these, these, these companies, there's good money and there's bad money for what they're trying to do. Uh, You know, a venture capital firm that's looking for a return in three years, probably not going to be the right fit for someone who's trying to sell into schools. And I get why it's alluring and all these things, but I think just a much, you know, much clearer understanding of like what's the right funding that's going to unlock you know what i'm trying to accomplish and the time horizon maybe most importantly over which i'm going to accomplish it it's not that there aren't good businesses to be built in education it's just not clear to me that a lot of them
0: are traditional venture capital businesses yeah it's a good point that i mean the same way you were talking about funding flexibility from public policy to schools we do need sort of smarter uh, venture capital in the space that understands the dynamics of education and much more sort of similar to some other areas with longer horizons like healthcare. You see this yep. a lot, right? Recently with climate tech that have horizons of 10 and 20 years uh, to prove out the technologies and the systems. It's, a, it's similar. It can be similar in certain areas here. All right. So last question. I mean, what is exciting you the most right now? Like, is there a particular company? Is there a particular school system or workforce company or something? What is what is exciting you the most right now? I can list a lot of companies, but I'm not going to do that.
1: I, what I'm going to say is exciting me the most is frankly, like, I think parents are still... So there's a bunch of the, that is snapping back to the way things were before the pandemic that does not make me excited. But the one thing that is not snapping back is that it seems to me parents are making choices and treating education much more as consumers where they have agency and the ability to make choices right for their families and their students. And I think that's really exciting because I think it's going to either put pressure on schools to innovate and meet these needs, or it's going to continue to cause a lot of flourishing of entrepreneurs and these micro schools and other arrangements that have popped up that I think are terrific, right? And that are allowing us to really rethink education. And so that parental pressure and understanding of their jobs to be done and acting on it,
0: I think is something that really excites me right now. Well, Michael, your book excites me. It couldn't come at a better time because I just... I think, again, the pandemic fatigue is real... But we also need some new ideas so we don't squander this moment and this opportunity. But also, I think schools want, and a lot of workforce companies and a lot of higher ed want to be responsive to this moment. But I think you give them an excellent blueprint in it. So thank you for the book. Thank you for just joining us today and just giving us the benefit of learning from you on this journey. So thanks so much. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tech Enabled. Special thanks to Matthew Glavish and the AEI's communications and digital strategy teams for their help in producing this episode. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. And while you're there, leave us a review. It helps others to find the show, and we always benefit from your feedback. We'll see you on the next episode.